Welcome to the Foundry Church. We're so glad that you're tuning into this message. We post these audio versions every week so you can keep up with them by subscribing to this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about us as a church, you can visit our website at foundrychurch.net or like us on Facebook by searching our name. That said, here's this week's message in our series called Believe. So there's a well-known Christian author and speaker who talked about his dad who had been in ministry, and he said this, my dad faced all the temptations that other pastors and people face, but here's the thing, he didn't give in. He didn't uh, handle money wrongly. He wasn't abusive or controlling in his leadership. He didn't go out and, and behave immorally and have you know anything broken in his sexual identity or his relationships. He, Satan couldn't get through the front door, but Satan did find a back door into my dad's life. It was his appetite. He lived a life that was undisciplined in what he ate and how he took care of his body. And he said, my dad died far too young because of an aneurysm, because of his diet. It wasn't terribly wrong what he was doing, but in the end it cost him the rest of his life in ministry. He was kind of in the prime of his ministry years when that happened. And I want you and I to hold on to that idea today, the idea that, um, that though we may do really well with some of the sins that are right out in front, the big ones, right, don't ever forget that there are things that sneak in the back door of our lives and they wreak the same havoc as those sins on the outside. They may not be as overt. I would like to invite you as we get ready to tune our ear back into Scripture, into Revelation chapter 2, and listen to Christ as he speaks through John the Apostle a word to the seven churches. Today we talk about the church in Pergamum. To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the day, in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. If Jesus ever says the devil lives in your city twice in a verse, you might want to tune in, right? There's a problem with that. Jesus is saying, look, I know what's going on in your city. I, I know this. And when Jesus is speaking to them, there's an affirmation, I know you remain true to my name. I know that you didn't renounce your faith even when one of the church elders, Antipas, was put to death in your city. Jesus knew how hard it was for them to remain faithful because he knew the city of Pergamum. Pergamum's a Roman city in the empire. It's in modern-day Turkey, and it was a city that was unique because in it, it had all of the temples of all of the Greek pantheons and some extra gods thrown in. So they weren't the huge temples, like the Temple of Diana in Ephesus, not like those huge ones, but there were temples everywhere going throughout Pergamum. They saturated the city. They had a god for every need and every want, Any desire you want to fulfill, there's a God for that. Any need you have, you can make an offering for that. You can look at the Pergamum, let's just real quick take a glimpse at the different gods. The Pergamum altar, where Zeus, you know, rules on Mount Olympus, where he is, he's the God of power. And if you need power or influence, you go and make an offering to him. There's the God, uh, the temple to uh, Dionysus, who is the God of basically the ancient equivalent to Mardi Gras. He was pleasure, the God of pleasure, wine, and revelry, partying. 
So imagine what worship there was like. And, and it's really dark and it's really horrible. There's the temple of Athena, the goddess of wisdom. If you needed clarity on something, you could make a sacrifice to her. Try to get wisdom. Try to get insight. There was the temple of Trajan, the, the, the imperial temple, right? This is the imperial religion. Trajan was an emperor of Rome. Caesar is Lord. This would tell people that, and affirm your allegiance to the state and to the empire. There was the sanctuary of, of Hera. She was the goddess of marriage. So it turns out match.com just didn't happen here. It happened way back in, you know, like first century Greece. You'd be like, I'm having a hard time finding love. Well, here's the, you know, breakdown. This is your perfect match. This is the goddess of children. She was the sister and the wife of Zeus. That gets weird. You guys seem good with it, but it's his sister and his wife. So I don't know. You're not okay with that, are you? Because we're all about to stop being friends. Um, the sanctuary of Demeter. Demeter was the god of crops. And if you're having too much rain, like last spring, go and make an offering. Too little rain, go and make an offering. Got some corn borers going, go and make an offering. Little tomato blight, go and make an offering. The temple of Demeter. The sanctuary of uh, um, Asclepius. Where, where you look at this and you think, okay, what is this? It's actually the ancient Greek version of the hospital. It's where they would go to figure out what was going on, try to get healing or try to figure out what was wrong with them. They would go and try to get a vision of the illness they have. And just, just because sometimes, you know, things make it stick in your mind, here's what they'd do. They'd give you this drink. You would drink it, pass out. They would lay you on the floor and then open the thing, whatever you have, wherever you keep your snakes, they would open it and the snakes would crawl over you and hopefully give you a vision. Guess what I'm dying of before I get snake treatment, right? I'm just like, well, looks like I'm dead. Um, but that's what they would do. So Asclepius is this weird thing and you think, oh my goodness, how strange. And the visions they would go get from Asclepius would tell them they would tell them what was wrong with them. And we think, how weird are these pagans? We would never do anything like that in America, would we? Anybody know what that is? It's a staff of Asclepius. Anybody know else what else this is? It's the medical symbol in America. Like, this is the symbol for medicine in America. It's the staff of Asclepius. It's always fun how culture drips in, isn't it? And gets into our lives. There is a Serapis temple. This is a weird one for them because outside of the Greco-Roman um, pantheon of gods, there was Serapis. And Serapis is an ancient, thousands of years old uh, Egyptian god. We would know him by the Apis bull. And this is the god that um, they kind of, I don't know, they bought him out of hawk and brought him up to, to Pergamum. And uh, Serapis was there. And it says, remember in the scripture, you know, you were faithful even when Antipas was put to death, Antipas was put to death, burned alive in front of the Serapis temple in a structure formed around the Apis bull. We see God exerting his lordship over the Apis bull clear back in the Exodus, so rewind the biblical clock 1,400 years. We see God laying out 10 different plagues on the people of Egypt, on the Pharaonic empire of Egypt, and one of them was to show his lordship over the Apis bull when God struck, struck down, what? The cattle of all of Egypt. So we can look at this and realize that there's nothing new under the sun. It's this strange kind of weird pagan culture. And for the church living in that day and age, I would think 
that with that many temples going on, you would feel like you would glow in the dark as a Christian. To be a monotheistic, a one, you know, one God person among the pantheon, you would feel strange. Let me paint it this way. I don't like Penn State, the university, but anybody else kind of not like the Nitt- Nittany Lions? Yeah, just, you guys are Nittany Lion fans? No, work with me. Some Nittany, okay. So let's imagine this. You go to Penn State because you're a Michigan fan. We're just using a college. You can paint it Sparty if you need to. But you go to see Michigan play at Happy Valley in Penn State. You go to watch them play. 110,000 crazed college students and the alumni of Penn State, a small little student section from U of M. You paint your face maize and blue. You get all the colors going. You and a friend go into the stadium. You buy tickets from a scalper. You're looking around the arena, and you see your section. Okay, we're over there in 2.30. And you look at it, and then you look right below it, and it is a sea of all white, all white, student section of Happy Valley, and you're in L21, right in the middle of it. What do you do? Like you go in, excuse me, pardon me, go blue, huh? (laughs) Kind of the hail to the victors. Oh, sorry, you know. What do you do? Like the camera pans over, and it's like, yeah, here we are at Happy, and what are they doing there? And like a newsflash pops up. Turns out two students die today at, you know, at Happy Valley. Because standing in the middle of that crowd, among the all-white kind of, they, all, they do this white-out thing at Penn State. And standing maize and blue in the middle of that, you would stick right out. You would glow in the dark. That's what it would look like to be in Pergamum as a Christian. You would glow in the dark. And Jesus knows that they have this life of standing out among the crowd You remain true to my name. Even when your leader and your elder is put to death, you did not renounce your faith in me. They kept themselves pure. They didn't go to the temples. They didn't eat the meals and the meat sacrificed to idols. They lived on a subculture outside because they were faithful to God. Look how faithful we are. They could have said that to God, and God really would say back in verse 12, I know where you live, and I know Satan lives there too, and you've been faithful. Look how faithful we've been, God. But there is this painful nevertheless, right? It's this moment, and it says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating meat, offering to offer to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Likewise, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with a sword in my mouth. Whoever has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. Hold on to that phrase. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So Jesus charges his church to look at something that's going on within them, and he says it's not okay. It's not okay. So in order for us to understand it, what I would like to do is dial the clock back again to 
about 1,400 years again to the, um, the conquest of the land. In the book of Numbers, so you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Those are the first few books of the Bible, the first four in the Bible. And um, what you have is in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, you have in chapter 22 the story of Balaam. Balaam is, um, he's a man which he goes and curses people for money. That's kind of what he is. And um, I know it's weird. I could call him a wizard, but I went man witch, and I like that. Um, so he's this guy who goes and curses. He's a soothsayer. He's a, you know, a spiritualist. And King Balak hires him to curse the people of Israel because Israel is encamped just beyond the east of the Jordan. They see Jericho, and there's millions of them, and the people, the inhabitants of the land are afraid. So Balaam goes, he gets on his donkey, and he rides off to get paid to curse the people of Israel. As he's riding, his donkey looks up on the path ahead of him and sees an angel with a flaming sword blocking his path. What donkeys do at that point is like, I'm going to go left, right? And he goes out into a field, and Balaam's like, no, what are you doing? And he climbs off, and he grabs his, like, oh, oh, you know, he's, like, pulling his, like, stupid donkey, you know, kick him, pulling him on. Donkey's scared to death. Balaam can't see it. Eventually, the donkey and Balaam have a terrible transit time. Eventually, they get into this narrow corridor with stone walls on either side, and as they're walking, the angel stands in front of them again. The donkey, being afraid and trying to get away, pushes up against the stone wall. Well, if you've ever ridden a beast of burden, you know that your legs go over them. And have you ever had that knob on your ankle get hit? Anybody? That's what happens to Balaam, right? He's riding, he's like, oh, donkey, oh! It's smashing his ankle. Like, I've had it where you're, like, getting ready to golf and you're talking with friends. You're swinging your nine iron. It's like, click, and it hits your ankle knob, and you're like, I'm going out. Uh, that kind of pain, I know women claim childbirth, ankle knob, nine iron, right? Ankle knob with a nine iron, that'll drop anyone, anyone, just a child in a puddle, right? So he gets ankle knobbed by his donkey. He loses it. He jumps off the donkey with staff in hand doing what every good PETA activist does. He begins wailing on the donkey. Stupid donkey. Should have killed you if I had a sword, I would. Whop. And he's just beating the donkey. And the donkey goes, why have you struck me these three times? <laughs> what? What? Well, you're stupid, donkey. You've pushed me into a wall. I just wish I could kill you. And he ends up saying, look, dude, I mean... There's an angel blocking our path, and had I not stopped, you'd be dead. So, I mean, it's a proverbial, what now of the ancient world? Because he's sitting there going, oh, and then God opens his eyes, and he sees the angel. And God tells Balaam, you may not curse my people. You may only bless them. Balaam tells this to Balak. He says, I can't curse him. Like, God's going to kill me if I do. I can't curse him. And Balak tries to get him to curse him, and he keeps blessing them. He keeps, Balaam's blessing the children and descendants of Jacob, and Balak's like, what, stop. That's not what I paid you to do, and he's getting really ticked. And eventually, he drives Balaam off, and as Balaam's getting ready to go, he says, you know, one thing you can do is you can have the Israelites move out from under the blessing of God. You could send your women into the camp and let them win the hearts of their men. And when they go to worship their gods, they will step out from under the blessing of God and under the curse of sin that you wanted me to pronounce. What did he do? He couldn't curse them, but he could tell them how to get them. He goes around the back door. He sneaks away in, and what did the children of Israel end up doing? 
they ended up marrying Amalekites, Hivites, Moabites, and different women from within these tribes, and they turned their hearts from God. So when we look at this, we can understand that being a Balaam is a big deal. Now, Balaam didn't resurrect for the book of uh, Revelation. What happened is Jesus is saying there is a spirit of Balaam. There is a spirit going on within this that is actually looking to find a way. They won't commit the big sins and go to the temples, but what what can we do? How can we get in the back door? How can we subtly deceive them to live an unfaithful life? Because Balaam seemed to turn, right? But then he did something horrible. Now we know that Balaam is a spirit named by Jesus Christ that is this deceitful kind of backdoor, sneak-in-through-the-cracks kind of thing. And when we go back and look at this, we can understand Jesus is saying, watch out for anything that just kind of sneaks in, nice and quietly, seems friendly, right? It seems okay, it just sneaks in through the back door. It's not a big sin, it's just this little deal. And here's why I think Jesus calls the church to repent. Because that's a big deal. Like, after what they're going through, why would Jesus say to them, repent? Why? Because I believe that Jesus is not unaware that they have stood up for his name and held fast during brutal persecution. Even Antipas, the church elder, who was put to death in front of them, they've stood up to that. But now, what are we seeing? Now we're seeing that it's not enough just to avoid the big things. You gotta deal with the little things, the little things that sneak in. In the Song of Solomon, uh, the, the, the author writes it this way, catch us the little foxes that sneak in and steal the harvest. They eat the great buds. They remove the harvest, right? And, and we're dealing with little things that sneak in and break it. And so what we know, and I think church, this is a bit of a hard word, and I don't apologize for saying it because it's been spoken in my life even as it is over yours in just a moment. But here's the thing we have to look at. They were putting up with, the church in Pergamum, among all their good efforts, were putting up with allowing or ignoring Balaam's little things to just sneak in and acting like it's no big deal. When Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection says sin is the deal, no matter big or small, it creates a separation between us and God. It's a very big deal. It's, it's the deal. Look at verse 14 when it says this. Balaam taught Balak how to entice to kind of, hey, come on, try this. Give it a whirl. It's no big deal. Entice the people of Israel to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. He, he taught them how to trick and deceive. And here's what they were doing. They were putting up with, allowing or ignoring those little lies to haunt their back door and to get into the community. And, and here's the thing, many in the church would say, but I'm not doing that. I'm not doing those things. What does it matter if they're doing it? I'm not. I'm responsible for me. And in this scripture, we can say that there is an individual responsibility and a collective responsibility for the church of Jesus Christ. That is you. That is not a building. It is you. There's a collective responsibility to not just be watching you. Verse 14, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, and you're not doing anything about it. You're not speaking up. You're not standing up. You're letting it permeate the culture. 
So how do we guard our church from Balaam's? How do we guard our church from those sneaky little sins that try to get in and undermine the gospel? How do we guard our church and be welcoming? Isn't that the question? Because you've got to be able to come here broken. We don't want people to come in here perfect. So how do you guard and welcome? Here's what I would say. We know that false teachers and false prophets and false doctrines are going to come. And there's dozens of them going on through the world in our current culture. Dozens of them. And we know they're going to try to sneak in and occupy the, the word of God time in this church, in our devotions or in our teaching or even in our groups. It's, false teachers try to sneak in all the time. We did the series Short and Sweet, and a lot of those short books in the New Testament dealt with false teachers. But how are we going to protect and still be welcoming? Here's what I wrote down. Be kind, hospitable, and generous to everyone. Assume the best in people and let people come and see the goodness of God through Scripture and this community. Be kind, generous, hospitable to everyone. Let them come and assume the best of them. Let them see the goodness of God in Scripture and in the life of this community. But understand this, church. We will not amend Scripture because you're or I am broken. Amen. I agree, right? We will not amend Scripture, the gospel, or its claim for our lives to be transformed because we're broken. Well, that's the way God made me. No. God remade you in the image of Christ. We have to understand that we will not change the doctrine of the church. We will not change what Scripture says because it's culturally inconvenient. It was brutal for the church in Pergamum. And it came in in little ways. It started sneaking in in little ways. It was hard on the front, but the back door was letting things in. We will not amend the gospel. We won't change it so that the culture says, oh yeah, you're doing a much better job, church. You're loving people as they are. No, no, no. We're loving them as Christ made them to be. Come as you are. Come as you are and meet God on his terms, not ours. That's what we say here. There are tons of broken lives in this room. There are people fighting addiction and different things. And can I just say, if you're fighting addiction in this place, God bless you for the hard work of going through the rewiring of your worst habits into a new and fruitful life. That is transformation. There are people in this building fighting the good fight. And they know, especially addicts know, that the, the back door, it's the little things that get to you. It's the little things. And when we look at this and understand that we as Christians cannot amend Scripture, we can't make changes in our doctrine or what Scripture says because people don't like it. They're not going to like it. It is inconvenient to be called to take up a cross and follow Jesus Christ in mission. But it's what you and I were called to do, and we are going to have to make a choice. Will we stand out like a sore thumb, like Michigan fans in the middle of the Nittany Lions, or are we just going to kind of blend into the crowd and just make nice because we don't want people to be inconvenienced? Are we going to let the culture slowly invade the back door of our life, or are we going to hold to what Scripture says and believe that the Word of God is a transforming, spirit-filled entity within our life? We have to make the choice. But we also have to be aware that there's people out there, the Balaams, who will subtly try to get into the conversation. 
Our church does groups. We have devotions. We have this, the weekly gathering. And we have groups. And in your groups, this is where it could be very dangerous. This is where it can be very dangerous, how a Balaam can get in. And they ask questions that are hauntingly familiar. Did God really say, you know, that you can't do these things? Did God really say? And we can look at that and realize that there are people who we need to have our ears tuned as a warning sign to. Anyone who ever says, did God really say, just rewind the tape and remember that that's what the devil said to Eve, the first word between Satan and humanity was, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? If you ever hear that, you better get your Bible and get ready for a fight because you're in for it. You're headed for a temptation. But anyone who makes an excuse for your sin, have you ever had somebody tell you, it's okay, it's just how you are? Anybody else? Okay, just me. Awesome. Uh, a few of us out there, but like, you know, I'm, I'm not, I can be a horrible person sometimes. Not always, but there's times I can be a jerk. And um, like my bride, she will not have any of it. Eric is like, why are you being a jerk? Why would you hurt me? You know, because I'm always the victim. And um, you, you can go out there and it's like, well, that's how God made me. I don't know if God made you a jerk. I don't think that's true. I don't think God made you an abrasive, like, you know, skin remover to the culture. I don't think God made you that. I think God's trying to transform you into the image of Jesus who would speak a tough word, but he didn't do it without love. Here's what I know to be true. Anybody who endorses your sin, well, that's just how God made you. Run away from them. They are sneaking in the back door of your life saying, well, it's no big deal. You know, yeah, God loves you. Yes, he loves you. He loves you enough to slowly transform you into the image of his very son, Jesus Christ. But he will not tolerate us sitting back and going, well, that's just how I was made. It's just who I am. It's what comes natural. People will come into groups, make jokes and comments that are completely out of line, and somebody has to stand up and say, we don't do that. We're, that's not the way we talk. That's not who we are. People will come, and they'll be like, I have something really heavy on my heart that I need to share. Did you see what Eric was wearing today? I'm like, that's not a prayer request, that's gossip. Or they say, did you see, like I saw Eric and Erica at the store and he kind of, like he looked really mad at her at the store, you know, and she was like taking cookie crisp from him and, and he looked super bitter. I, I, don't, I don't know if their marriage is all that. We should pray for him, right? Oh, God bless the church prayer lines that feed the rumor mills gossip. It is a sin. And you can talk about whoever you want and make all your assumptions and live in the reality of your own mind or you can be transformed. But if you're going to be transformed, you need to be aware of what to look out for. There are people who will gossip, malign, and they sneak in with words and things you want to hear. Did you hear about, I'm the worst? No, what? Like, I, it's hard. I'm interested in those kinds of things. I have to pull back. Or somebody's saying, oh, I know, well, maybe you're just not strong enough to, to see that movie or, or to be around that stuff. You know, my faith is really developed. I'm good. I hope you grow up to be like me. And I'm like, yeah, you may think that's not true. I have literally been at a place in ministry when I was in missions who someone who was struggling with alcohol addiction was poured a glass of wine because it's all under the blood. What do you think that did to that person? It sent them off a cliff. It's no big deal. Hey, claim your victory in Jesus. 
No, but don't be foolish. Don't let things in the back door. Don't allow things that go on. Movies, entertainment. Like church, if I can just be really honest, we love to beat on certain sins, so just allow me to tee culture up for a minute and say this. We watch unmitigated violence, brutal violence. We have all these different things against like just humans being destroyed and massacred and we giggle and we laugh. We listen to the misuse and blasphemy of Jesus' name and God's name over and over again in movies because our faith is strong enough not to be affected or because our soul is calloused and we justify a sin that God doesn't. We better listen to those things that sneak in. What, so I can't see movies now? I don't know. You have to look at your back door and see what God's saying. Just don't ever look to justify the sin or have someone else justify it for you. Actually, what we have to do is we have to listen to the words of Scripture. Repent. Repent. We have to be called into a life of repentance. Have you allowed anything in your personal life, your family life, your work life, your church group life, your church life, have you allowed anything to sneak into the back door and amend Scripture and change the meaning of Scripture because it's more culturally fitting or, or just make some changes that maybe you don't feel so guilty about? Have you allowed anything have you ever had that moment where your kid kicks on their, um, their, their, their phone and they're putting their earbuds in, but it comes out the phone before their earbuds connect, and you hear the lyrics of the music going on, and you have that moment where you're like, what you listening to? Oh, nothing. It's fine. It's in their ears now. You don't have to hear it. And you'd be like, make sure you listen to good things, because you don't want to be that mom who's all weird and old and says, that's horribly blasphemous, profane music and maybe probably not the best for your soul. Oh, mom, you're such a nerd. We know. We know. We were once awesome just like you, right? But you don't want to be that parent. You, want to, you don't want to be the one who's like, oh, so lame, Mr. Rules, right? I get called uh, Mr. Rules a lot because there's things where I guard my children over, but I remember one thing very clearly. When our son Josh was like, boom, that big, he was just such a little fatty, and um, he would play, and he was, he was like 34 pounds a year, He's, and, um, and he was playing with something in the front room, and Erica said, Josh, you can't play with that, and she took it from him, right, right from his meaty little paw, took it away, and he looked sad, but he was super good little kid, yeah. You know, and off she goes. She's doing something in another room, and she can hear him playing with it. Now, to the economy of moms, what I'm about to share with you, you're like, oh, that's a tough call, man. Because she's listening to him play for it, having the wrestling match. Do I make sure he obeys, and do, do I go and correct him so he doesn't live in sin, knowing that I'm kind of endorsing it? Or do I let him have playtime, because then I can get things done, and I could really use about 10 minutes of quiet? Moms? Like you run to the altar, oh my gosh, that's a word for me, right? Like you know this. You know it to be true. The economy of a mom is like, I've got 10 minutes to spare. Who cares if they're playing with something they shouldn't? Maybe, I, you know, it's okay. I mean, maybe he didn't hear me clearly. I mean, they are toddlers and it's gibberish, right? We can make all kinds of backdoor excuses. And I remember Erica saying it was so hard to go in, take it away and say, I said no. And then she had to play and re-engage him in something else instead of getting done the thing that mattered. We need to look at life and repent for the areas where we are willfully and knowingly 
sinning against God, willful, unrepentant sin that has snuck into our lives and we think it's okay. And Jesus says, it is not. Stop. Turn and follow Jesus. Turn and follow him. Repentance is a turning and a following because we are promised a life victorious. And I want you to hear me when I say this. There is something about the promise of victory that, that, that almost haunts your mind. You know you're going to win. And when you know you're going to win, it doesn't mean you quit grinding and wait for it to come. It means you go get it. You go get what is yours. And you fight it and you work for it. Being at regionals for wrestling yesterday, my goodness, it was so amazing to watch these guys wrestle it out. And they would wrestle for the all three periods and get done. And it was like 2-2 after three periods of wrestling. And they are purple and sweaty. And they've had to mop up the blood like three times. It's awesome. And they're like going at it. And they get up and it's sudden death. And it's like, you know, or maybe like there's 30 seconds left in the third period. It's 2-2. And one person just makes some, like they're tired and they're weak. And they kind of relax. And the other wrestler pins on it and spins around and gets them in a hold and takedown. They get two points and the other wrestler left face down on the mat broken hearted because in a moment of weakness they let something slip in the back door and you watch the grief church make sure you hear this to play with sin is to be left in a life of grief and heartache reaping a harvest you never dreamed you would sow we have to know that we are in a fight and it's the little things that make the difference it's the little things the granular, granular small things because in this word, victorious, Jesus is speaking through John a word the church would understand. And here's the word. The Greek athletes who ran in the first Olympics and played in the first Olympics would be given two things when they win. They would be given a feast, a ticket to the feast. So there would be a feast that is held for the winners of the games. Now, in a world where not everybody gets to eat that much, it's a big deal to go to a feast. They'd be given a ticket to a feast, and they would be given a triumph when they get home. A well-done, good and faithful servant. A symbol of their victory would be sent with them, and they would celebrate as they came home. Think of what Jesus promised the people in Pergamum. To those who are victorious, I will give you some of the secret manna. You will have a party with me that nobody else can get into. Why? Because you're victorious. You ran the race. You finished. You did the hard work. You ground it out. And you will come to the feast. We call it in church the marriage supper of the Lamb, the feast in heaven, the wedding banquet of Christ and the church, his bride. And Jesus is saying, I will invite you to a feast as a member victorious of my church. Go and be victorious. Make the choice. Do the hard thing. Don't let anything in your back door because along with that feast comes something. In Scripture, it's a little stone with a name written on it that only you can understand. And there's a lot of scholarly debate around it, but here's what it means. He will give you something so valuable and it's only for you and it is your triumphal entry into his kingdom it is the opportunity to take the victorious life run and won in christ and enter into our master's blessing church hear me let's quit playing games with what god says is sin evil and wrong and let's start living a life that does something different and here's how we do it we live a life filled with the Holy Spirit that does one unique thing that the world can't imitate. If you live a life in the Word of God, filled with the Spirit of God, 
out of your life begins to grow love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I would say those are pretty good. That's an abundant life being lived. And you can't manufacture it. You can grow it by being in the Word of God, in the community of God, and in the Scriptures. Get into groups if you're not in them. Get into your devotions in the Word of God. Get into it because when you begin to live a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, the world looks at it and goes, I have none of that. I have none of that, and I have every altar the world says I could, I could need, and I have no, no love, no joy, no peace, no patience. Where do you get it? And your life victorious begins to declare to the world around you, you don't need all the hijinks of religion. You need Jesus Christ. You need to be made into his image and not justify your brokenness. Our brokenness is made whole in Christ, and we are transformed into his image. My friends... May love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control born of the Holy Spirit in your lives be evident to the world beyond our doors. And we will see them come running to a gospel they understand better because of the life you live. Pray with me. God, thank you for who you are. Bless your word as it goes forth. Um, guard our hearts and minds, Lord. It, I don't want this to be religion we're not just doing good things. We're, we're actively guarding our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. So today we hold on to the promise of a victory. A victory that you won and then a race you called us to run in your name and your power. So fill us, Holy Spirit. Wash us with your word. And may we live a life victorious in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand. Sing with me. I don't know if you caught it in that song, but it says, the triumph of his name will never end. And it's such a Greek understanding. The triumph, the procession, the active procession, and giving of gifts of a victor to the world around them. The triumph, it was a Roman thing. Julius Caesar had the biggest one ever in 46 AD. Huge thing. And it says in that song, it says in this scripture that the triumph of Jesus Christ will never end. Why? Because you and I wrestle and contend daily for the divine compliment. One thing at the end of all of this life I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And it causes us to look to the back door. The enemy will never stop throwing every temptation in your face, and he will never stop looking for a way into the back door of your life. Fight, church, because you are part of the triumph of Christ, rolling on now for 2,000 years. Let's see what he does next through lives like ours. If you need prayer, come up. Let us pray for you. If you've realized today, well, there's some things going on in the back of my life that need to be dealt with, come up. No perfect people are allowed here, and if you are perfect, God bless you. Go somewhere else. I don't want you here. You mess me up, right? I, you bother me. It's hard on my soul because God's remaking us. We are broken people being restored and remade. If you need prayer, come receive prayer. Get your devotions on the way out. Get into a group. Feed your life the Scriptures and the Spirit-filled community of Christ, and let's see that triumph broaden and the noise of it expand in our community, in our lifetime. Amen? May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. 
May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triumph begins. The church must leave the building. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you're looking for a way to prepare yourself for next week's, you can visit us at foundrychurch.net and find our weekly devotions by scrolling down on the homepage. Being in God's word every day is part of what we call our weekly rhythm here at the Foundry. We hope you felt challenged and encouraged by this and hope that you'll tune in again next week.